Shalom, I'm Rabbi Scott. Welcome to the ministry of Beth Yeshua Messianic Synagogue in Fort Myers, Florida. We hope and pray that this teaching will be a blessing to you. If you would like to support our ministry, please go to our website, www.bethyeshuafla.com to donate online, or we can accept your donation over text. Please text the word GIVE to the number 239-747-7526. Thank you for your support. Blessings and Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. We've been uh, looking at things in and around the narrative of Elijah, so forth. I want to begin this morning with a conclusion, if you will. I want to begin with uh, the end, and then we'll kind of go back and sort it out and sort of try to fill in the biblical basis for what this conclusion is, and then we'll try to flush it out practically and what that means for us. The, the reason that I want to do this back to front, so to speak, is because the conclusion is a little bit nuanced. Uh, it's, I think the conclusion gives us a basis for our position with the world and with ourselves in the days to come, but it's a little bit uh, different than I think what we're used to. So let's begin with a question. How do we approach Adonai? Uh, we approach Adonai in, in prayer. How, how do we do this? How do we approach Adonai in prayer? What, is our, what does it look like? What is the characteristic or description of how we approach Adonai uh, when we come to Adonai with petitions, requests, intercessions, all these different ways that we come close to Adonai. Um, what does this look like? We tend to approach Adonai in one of three different ways. First, uh, or, or three or four different ways. First, we approach him as a beggar. This may seem a little offensive to hear, but, but let me explain. We approach as a beggar in that we are poor, and we're looking at Adonai as not poor, basically. We don't have resources. We don't have power. So we approach Adonai begging him, pleading with him to do something or provide something that I cannot. So, for example, if somebody comes to us needing money, if I was wealthy, I would give them money. Uh, or if I was influential, I'd give them a job. I might make a recommendation. If I was prominent, I might make sure they get a job. Do you see but I'm not. I'm not powerful. I'm not wealthy. So I can't answer their prayer. So what I do is I go to God and I ask him to provide the answer. But I'm coming to him like a beggar because I'm poor and he's wealthy. I come to him with nothing, but he has everything. So I plead or beg for something for myself or for someone else. Okay, we also tend to approach him in prayer as a demanding child. We've all seen this. We've all been around this. A person in praying, their words are quite demanding. Their words are very insistent. Their confidence in prayer borders on belligerence. It's interesting. I looked up demand in the thesaurus, and one of the synonyms for demand was prayer. <laughs> but I'm talking about the type of prayer here that challenges Adonai. Um, we have all seen various teachings on prayer that suggest if you pray in the right way that you'll be healed. Uh, we've all heard those kinds of teachings, uh, that if you say the right words, almost you will be provided for. And there's a whole arc of teaching regarding prayer 
that I'm sorry to say borders on superstition. The superstition is when you have a certain kind of words or a certain kind of attitude and it will accomplish a certain effect. There's a superstition there. Um, there have been countless books. Many years ago, a little book came out called The Prayer of Jabez. Um, some of you might remember that. And the premise of the book was if you prayed a certain way, with certain words, that God would bless you. This is a kind of superstition in prayer. Yes, when, when you pray and you come and you approach God, yes, he's going to bless you. But what I'm speaking of is that, that sort of mentality that says, no, you have to say it this way, or you have to do this, or you have to pray this way. Um, we see this in the area of healing a lot, that you must pray with faith and have faith in order to be healed. And yes, Yeshua did talk about this. There is a relationship between faith and being healed, but it doesn't mean that because you don't have enough faith, you're not going to be healed. That's not what, we're, that's not what the answer is there. Okay. So I would say that the second way that we tend to approach Adonai is, is as a demanding child. We, we come to him and, and we insist and we stamp our foot on the ground in prayer and we say, no, you have to do this. Um, another way that we tend to approach Adonai is, is as if he is dozing or sleeping. It's as if we're, we, we're thinking that maybe he's ignorant of something. There's something he doesn't know. Sometimes we approach him to remind him of, of something that he seems to have forgotten, like some grandfather that forgot to take the garbage to the curb or something. And we approach Adonai this way, and we say, I'm, I'm, I'm reminding you of this. We are bringing something to his attention that perhaps he doesn't really care about, or perhaps something we think he needs to really care about. Like the parable of the unjust judge, which you should see on your screens, Luke chapter 18, Yeshua told his Talmudim a parable in order to impress on them. In a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared not God nor respected other people. There was also in that town a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Give me a judgment against the man who is trying to ruin me. For a long time he refused, but after a while he said to himself, I don't fear God, I don't respect other people, but because this widow is such a nudnik, she's so annoying, I will see to it that she gets justice. Otherwise, she'll keep coming and pestering me till she wears me out. Then the Lord commented, Notice what this corrupt judge says. Now, won't God grant justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Um, this parable is actually a how much more teaching, and we see this pattern over and over again, how much more. Um, it's one of the favored patterns of, of rabbis throughout history and is employed by Yeshua over and over again. It looks like this. Adonai takes care of the sparrows, right? Well, how, therefore, you are greater than sparrows. Therefore, how much more will Adonai take care of you? Or this from Matthew 12, if a sheep falls into a pit on Shabbat, will you lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Shabbat. So it's the how much more argument. Um, and then the, the inverse of the how much more argument uh, from Matthew 7, if there's anyone here who, if his son asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, will give him a snake. So if you, even though you are bad, know how to give your children gifts that are good, how much more will your Father in heaven keep giving good gifts? So even though we know that Adonai hears our prayers, knows our needs, and is diligent in caring for us, sometimes our approach to Adonai looks as if we think we somehow need to remind Adonai of something he forgot. So I come to this conclusion that we have these three kind of approaches to Adonai, like a beggar, like a demanding child, and like a widow who is not receiving justice, who needs to remind the judge to be good. 
And I think we approach Adonai in this way. And, and, and let, me, let me say this. This is not a, a, a reprimand or a judgment against you. This is just, I think we need to get our heads around this so that we can understand. Yes, we do this, and you see the patterns of this in the, in the, in the scriptures. Um, but what I want to do is, is open something up deeper and greater that you can step into. We're talking and studying about Elijah. The legacy of Elijah is referenced throughout the Bible. Clearly, Adonai wants us to understand the Elijah. Clearly, there is an Elijah for today. That this is not just a historical figure from whom we can be inspired to imitate. Rather, this is an archetype whom we become. Indeed, this Elijah returns at the end of the age to usher in the last great revival. I used to think that the last revival would be the revival of Israel and the blessings that will flow to the Gentiles in Messiah, uh, as you see in Romans chapter 11. Um, we have seen this, and we will see this. But we also see this clearly from Scripture, from Malachi uh, chapter 3 or chapter 4, depending on the English or Hebrew Bible numbering system. Same verses, same text, just different numbers. Uh, so in the Hebrew Bible, it's chapter 3, and the, the English Bible is chapter 4 says this, Look, I will send you to you, Eliyahu the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. With our current concerns this day regarding children, with our understanding of the dilemmas and the crises of our time, we believe that these can only be addressed with a supernatural restoration of parents' hearts towards their children and of children's hearts towards their parents. This is what we're looking for, is a supernatural restoration. And in the text, it's very clear that it is the Elijah who turns the hearts of the children back to the fathers and the fathers to their children. Just this week, somebody in our community has received an incredible breakthrough in their family. This was a situation that had persisted over decades. It was intractable. It was immovable. It was a situation of great pain and distress. And yet just this week, a parent's heart was restored to their ch child and a child's heart was restored to their parent. This is a miracle that is no less powerful and amazing than some of the healings that we have witnessed in our congregation. This is the Elijah task for our day, to turn the hearts and parents towards children and children towards parents. 1 Kings chapter 17. This is the Elijah. This is this character, this sort of mysterious person who comes out of the waste. Eliyahu from Tishbe, an inhabitant of Gilad, said to Ahav, As Adonai, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither rain nor dew in the years ahead unless I say so. It's clear that Adonai wanted us to get something out of this announcement, this introduction. Many times in the, when a new character is introduced, uh, especially in the Torah, we get some backstory, we get some history. And here, we don't get any backstory, we don't get a genealogy, we don't get any history. What we get is just Elijah thrust upon the scene. Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu HaTishbi, we sing at Pesach. Elijah the prophet. This prophet became necessary because of the life and times of Israel during those days. We're going to uh, just take some time and go through what was going on 
in Israel during those days. Uh, from 1 Kings chapter 16, just previous to this verse, uh, starting in verse 29. It was the 38th year of Asa, king of Yehuda, that Ahav, the son of Omri, began his rule over Israel. Ahav is an interesting name. Ah means is from uh, brothers, Acharim, Ahav. And then Av is father. So his name in the Hebrew, if it's a, truly a Hebrew name, would have meant brother-father, which is kind of an oddity. Uh, it began his rule over Israel. Achav, the son of Omri, ruled 22 years over Israel um, in Shomron. Uh, and then next frame, we have Achav, the son of Omri, did what was evil from Adonai's perspective, outdoing all his predecessors in wickedness. That's a well-done accomplishment because he had some predecessors that were quite evil and quite wicked as well. Next frame, please. But then, as if it had been a trifling thing for him to commit the sins of Yerovom, uh, the son of Nevat, he took as his wife Itzavel, the daughter of Baal, king of Zidonim, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. Baal was the storm god. He was uh, one of the pagan deities of the people of Canaan of Canaan, and uh, we find him uh, popping up in various uh, pagan practices uh, throughout this time. Um, it was one of the pagan deities that Israel stumbled over uh, frequently. Uh, Baal was the storm god. Uh, Asherah, uh, whom you hear referenced, was his wife in the pantheon, and, uh, and so that's who those characters are. You, you see references to Asherah and Asherah poles, and you see references to the Baals and the, the altars for Baals. He built an altar. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Shomron. Uh, and then it says this, Achav also set up the Asherah. Indeed, Achav did more to anger Adonai, the God of Israel, than all the kings of Israel preceding him. It was during his time that Hiel of Baethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Aviram, and erected its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Saguv. This was in keeping with the word of Adonai spoken through Yehoshua, the son of Nun. Okay, so Omri was a king in northern kingdom, uh, what was referred to as Israel. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. There was Israel and Judah. Uh, Omri was evil in the sight of Adonai. He had a son named Nechav, and Omri went and, and got a wife for his son from Sidon, a princess of Baal, a priestess. Uh, Echav outdid all his predecessors in evil. And we have this progression. First it says he built an altar for Baal. This would have been an altar uh, for worship. And then it says he built a house for Baal. And then it says that re, uh, Jericho was rebuilt during his days. We later read of his wife, Itzavel, Jezebel in English, who had put to death many of the prophets of Adonai and had installed her own prophets of Baal. So why is Ahav, or Ahab in the English, why is Ahav so Wicked. Why, is he, why did he surpass everybody who came before him? To understand this, we need to remind ourselves of a couple things. First of all, the altar. The altar is where we bring sacrifices. The Hebrew word for sacrifices is korban or korbanot. Korbanot can mean closeness or drawing near. The sacrifices, the purpose of the sacrifices was to draw near to Adonai, to come close to Adonai. What is the purpose of the Mishkan, the purpose of uh, later the temple, the Beit HaMikdash? This is a tabernacle in the temple, the house, of his, the house of his presence. Its purpose was to make a connection point 
a connection point where you come and you connect with Adonai. But not just a place of connection, also a place of communion. Um, my daughter's dorm rooms, uh, you'll see this on colleges now where you'll have these suites, these dorm room suites, and it'll be several bedrooms off of a common living area. Sometimes four bedrooms off of a common living area. And, and this is actually a, a good illustration of how the temple and the tabernacle work. The temple is providing a place, a common area, where the glory presence of Adonai can dwell in this sphere and where mankind can go in and be with Adonai in that space. It is a place for us to come together. Um, the temple is providing a place where the glory uh, presence of Adonai can be interacted with. So it's, it's kind of like a, a, a common area, if you will. Uh, this was the case with the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and with the temple. Now, the temple was not built until we found the place where Adonai would cause his name to dwell, and that turned out to be Yerushalayim, Jerusalem. And we see this, that the, the tabernacle, the Mishkan, was the temporary dwelling place, and then, of course, the permanent home, the permanent house of the presence was built. The temple also consecrates the land of Israel to Adonai. And this is very important to understand, especially in our day and what's coming soon. I, I, my, my, my caution to everyone regarding end times is watch for the temple. When we see the temple being built, then we know things are close. Um, the temple is what consecrates the land of Israel to Adonai. It's what sets the land of Israel apart for Adonai. So what did Achav do that was so evil? Achav did this. He built an altar for Baal. What is the altar? It is closeness. So Achav built an altar to become close with this pagan deity, this demonic goat god. Um, and then he built a house for the Baal. The house is where you come together. So he built a place of communion for the demon goat god. He built a place uh, to, to, to commune with this, this, this demonic sort of master. And also, the house of Baal has the effect of consecrating the land to Baal in the same way that the temple. See, the, the house of Baal is supplanting or replacing the temple of Adonai. Okay, the last thing that Ahab did is he had Jericho rebuilt. Remember, Jericho is an expression of Adonai's conquest in the land of Israel. It's a memorial to a people that were defeated by the glory of God. Um, it was meant to be a reminder to future generations. When it was destroyed, it was destroyed, and, 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 uh, and Joshua uh, spoke this curse over it, that it would, was never to be rebuilt, and if it ever was, the person who raised its gates, his first, uh, his first son would, 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 would pass, and his, his youngest son would pass when it was completed. Um, so to rebuild Jericho, as it says, and it says that here in the text directly, it says um, uh, it was during his time that Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, erected its gates at the cost of his youngest son. This is in keeping of the word of Adonai spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So what we have here is, is resetting the table, taking back what Adonai had conquered, and reintroducing the Baal as a superseding deity in, in the land at that time. And this is why Ahav is described as doing more evil than all who came before. 
Continuing on with 1 Kings chapter 17, Eliyahu the Tishbite, an inhabitant of Gilad, said to Ahav, As Adonai, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there will be neither rain nor dew in the years ahead unless I say so. This phrase, before whom I stand, or in whose presence I stand, what does this mean? That Elijah stands in the presence of Adonai, there are two interpretations of this phrase, and I believe both of them are actually quite valid. Uh, the sages talk about this from two different perspectives. What does it mean when Elijah says, before whom I stand, or in the presence of God I stand? It is, first of all, that Elijah was expressing his role as a servant of Adonai, as a slave of Adonai. What we do is expressed in our labor, our gifts, our helps, our sacrifices, our leadership. What we do is all that we do to function and provide in ourselves to Adonai. This is, who I, this is what I bring to the table. These are the acts and the, 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 the activities that I do. It is the availability that I do, the availability that I have in the kingdom. This is what we do. Now, it is also, another interpretation of this phrase, before whom I stand, it is also who we are. What is it that we are in our hearts, our present, our identity? Don't you know that our identity is actually expressed in our prayers? This is why self-denial in prayer is so difficult. It's, it's a fundamental, almost a paradox. I'm expressing myself. I am being myself in prayer. I am presenting myself as myself in prayer. But the activity of prayer is a form of self-denial. And so it's, a, it's a very much a, a kind of a complex thing. Um, because I am being myself, I am taking my heart, my mind, my emotions, my needs. This is all my identity. These are what we, we bring uh, to stand in the presence of Adonai. So there, there are two things that we do in the presence of Adonai. We serve and we pray. Um, in the language of the phrase, to stand in the presence of Adonai would be understood as applying to a slave or a servant who is always available to the master to go and do. The servant stands in the presence of his master. And we know this from Matthew 8. As Yeshua entered Kepharnachum, a Roman army officer came up and pleaded for help. He said, Sir, my orderly is lighting at home paralyzed and suffering. Yeshua said, I will go and heal him. But the officer said, I am unfit to have you come into my home. Rather, if you only give the command, my, my servant will recover. And then he says this, For I too am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes. Another come, and he comes. Do this, and he does it. Verse 10, from Matthew chapter 8, Yeshua says this, On hearing this, Yeshua was amazed and said to the people following, Yes, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such trust, such faith. What is this faith? This faith is the idea that that when you stand in the presence of Adonai, you stand there as a servant, as an available servant. Standing in the presence of Adonai is also understood as the appeal a person would make to a king or a ruler. You would go to approach a governor or a king with a petition or a request. It would be very tense. It would be very uh, anxious. You could be thrown out. You could be rejected. You could even be put to death if you offend the king. It's a very tense moment. This is what it means to stand in the presence of the king. And this is what the language is pointing us to here when it says that Elijah stood in the presence of Adonai. 
So let's return to our opening premise, that we tend to approach Adonai as a beggar, as a demanding child, or as a widow seeking justice from an indifferent judge. How did Elijah approach Adonai? It says here that he stood in the presence of Adonai. And then it says this, this startling thing, that it will not rain except at his word. It will not rain except at his word. What is this position of Elijah? Because that's certainly not the voice of a beggar. Is it the voice of a demanding child? Is it the voice of a widow seeking justice from an indifferent judge? I've tried to come up with a word to describe this. And I think the word that fits best is zeal. Remember when Yeshua purged the temple of the money changers? And he said, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. Look what we see in Elijah. 1 Kings chapter 19, the next chapter over, starting in verse 9. um, uh, Elijah's on the run from Jezebel, running for his life, afraid for his life. And he ends up on Mount Horeb. We'll talk about this in the next week or so. But he ends up on Mount Horeb. And Adonai meets him there. And Adonai says to him, what are you doing here? Verse 10, he answered, I have been very zealous for Adonai, the God of armies. Because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, broken down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. Now I'm the only one left, and they're coming after me to kill me too. And then Adonai has him go outside. And then skipping down to verse 13, he says again, What are you doing here, Eliyahu? And Eliyahu answers him. Verse 14, I have been very zealous for Adonai, the God of armies. In Hebrew, this phrase, I have been very zealous for Adonai, the God of armies. We see this twice, this kano kinati, in verse 10 and verse 14 in this passage. I want to compare this for you uh, with Numbers 25. Numbers 25 is the, the famous narrative of, um, this is after the, uh, the temptation of uh, Balak when he brought in uh, women to tempt the Israeli men. Um, <clears throat> and one of them brought a woman into his tent, and Pinchas, uh, Pinchas or Phineas in the English, um, it says that uh, Phineas went and pursued them and went into the inner part of the tent, uh, verse 8 of Numbers 25, and he thrust his spear through the both of them, the man and the woman. And that was the, the, in that way, the plague was stopped. The plague was a judgment from Adonai for having um, taken up with these, uh, these pagan uh, idolaters. Verse 10, Adonai says to Moses, verse 11, Pinchas, the son of Elisar, the son of Aaron the Kohen, has deflected my anger from the people of Israel by being as zealous as I am. By being as zealous as I am is the translation here. And what is the Hebrew here? Once again, Um, 13, uh, I'm making a covenant with him. This was because he was zealous on behalf of his God. So the the sages like to discuss this passage and ask the question, was Pinchas justified in putting this man to death? In other words, was it it justified? And, and, And there was capital punish provided punishment provided for 
but it was under strict rules, and the net effect was very seldom did anybody actually get put to death in, in the ancient Israel. But when Pinchas did this, he did this outside of trial and testimony. He did this on his own behalf. He did this on his own accord. And here we have this kind of thing. We see Elijah as an echo of Pinchas. We see Elijah as an, as an echo of that kind of zeal where Pinchas grabs the spear on his own accord. He's defending the honor in the name of Adonai, and he's stopping the plague, and he's doing all these good things. But he does it almost on his own accord. It's his big idea. Or so it would seem. Look what we see in Joshua. Joshua chapter 10. Again, another echo of this. Joshua chapter 10. Verse 9. Um, they're going to take up and, and, and attack the Amorites. Uh, having spent the entire night marching from Gilgal, Joshua fell upon them, taking them by surprise. Joshua 10, verse 10. Adonai threw them into confusion, that is the Emory, threw them into confusion before Israel and defeated them in a great slaughter, pursuing them along the road that goes up from Beit Haron and so forth. Verse 11, as they fled before Israel down the road to Beit Haron, Adonai threw huge hailstones down on them and they died. More died because of the hail than because Israel had killed them with a sword. So what happens is, is they're going to go up against the Emory, and they march all night, taken by surprise. They take them by surprise in the morning. Adonai throws the enemy into confusion, and Israel has defeated them. And there's a great slaughter. And the, the leftovers are running away from the battle, trying to flee, trying to save themselves. And rather than allow them to run away, the creator God, Adonai of the universe, from heaven, throws down hailstones and starts killing them. That's, that's really what happens here. You would think that would be enough. Job done. More died because of the hail than because Israel had killed them with a sword. Do we need to do anything more? Do we need to go any further? But look what it says in the text. On the day that Adonai handed the Emory to the people of Israel, Yehoshua spoke to Adonai in the sight of Israel. He said, Son, stand motionless over Givon, moon you too over Ayalon Valley. So the sun stood still and the moon stayed put till Israel took vengeance on their enemies. This is written in the book of Yashar. The sun stood still in the sky and was in no rush to set for nearly a whole day. There has never been a day like that before or since when Adonai listened to the voice of a man. Adonai listened to the voice of a man, to the voice of Joshua, who's willing in temerity or audacity or something, to say this before Adonai. Sun stands still in the sky. What is being offered to us is a completely different paradigm. To approach Adonai not as a beggar, not as a desperate widow, and not as a demanding child, but as a man or woman of zeal. Art Katz speaks of this in his teachings on Elijah. What does it mean to have this zeal? What is the basis of this zeal? How is zeal any different than demanding? Because that's sometimes what it looks like, right? The person who's zealous seems to have a full head of steam. What separates somebody who's demanding from somebody who is acting like Elijah did? And this is what I would say from Hebrews 2. 
And we have this, what is mere man that you concern yourself with him or the son of man that you watch over him with such care? In other words, what is man that you would listen to him? What is man that he would say this, son, stand still? What is man that you would take up a spear and defend my honor? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. In subjecting everything to him, from Hebrews 2, you left nothing unsubjected to him. However, at present, we don't see everything subjected to him. This is all prophetic, speaking of Yeshua. We do see Yeshua, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by God's grace he might taste death for all humanity. Then it says this in verse 10, For in bringing many sons to glory... It was only fitting that God, the creator and preserver of everything, should bring the initiator of their deliverance to the goal through sufferings. For both Yeshua, who sets people apart for God, and the ones being set apart of a common origin, this is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, when he says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then again this, verse 13, here I am with, along with all the children that God has given me. Yes, this refers to Yeshua, but there's another mystery here. It refers to us. In the beginning of this passage, it's saying this, what is mere man that you concern yourself with him? What is mere man that you would listen? What is mere man that you would watch over him with such care? And yet, you crowned him with glory and honor. You put everything in subjection under his feet. When Elijah stood up to Ahab, to Ahab, he stepped into that place having everything in subjection under his feet. It will not rain except at my word. How did Elijah get there where he could say that? First of all, I, I, just full disclosure here, I wouldn't dare say that because I'd just make a fool of myself, right? I mean, that's how I think anyway. So some of you have heard me pray. I've prayed for some of you that have been sick. Yes, I sound like a beggar. I sound like a demanding child. Right? What makes it different? How do I get to the place where Elijah was? This is what I think. It says, verse 10, in bringing many sons to glory. This is the the distinction. It refers to us as the ones being brought to glory. What does this mean, this bringing many sons to glory? It means that we all have a hope in this glory when we are reunited with Yeshua. Right? That's what it means to be brought to glory, is we're going to have a hope in our reuniting with Yeshua that we're going to be in glory. Yes, that's true, but there has to be an immediate. Everything prophetic has a future and an immediate. There has to be an immediate. What does it mean to be brought to glory as a son of Adonai today? What can that possibly mean? A son or daughter of Adonai being brought to glory today. What is this glory here and now? It is the zeal for my father's name, for his house, and for his honor. It is that Adonai listens to me, a man, and allows me to be a prophet. First of all, we read last week in last week's portion that other men were prophesying in the camp, and Moses said, I wish you were all prophesying. What did Paul say? He says, eagerly desire the greater gifts, especially that you might prophesy. That Adonai listens to me, a man, and allows me to be a prophet, that he even allows me to be the Eliyahu Hanavi, Elijah, for this age. What does it mean to be the Elijah for this age? It means that I approach Adonai as a son. 
diligent to be approved as a son. A son is about his father's business. A son is faithful. Remember the self-denial of the service and prayer? This is what must be cultivated. I can only hope to encourage you with these words this morning to open you up to the consideration of the awesome burden of this invitation to come into the presence of Adonai not as a beggar, not as a widow, not as a demanding child, but as a good son, a good daughter. To encourage you to continue in faithfulness and prayer, learning self-denial, but not the self-denial of a shouty child, the self-denial of a good son, a good daughter. Isn't this what the parable of the wayward son shows us? There were two sons. One was the self-seeking, foolish son who went and squandered everything he had. And there was the good son, the son who was about his father's business. But there's something missing in the good son. He's about his father's business, but he doesn't even know that his, older, that his, his, his wayward brother has come home. He doesn't even know this. Um, we, we, could, we could pull it up, perhaps. But, but in the chapter, it says this. First of all, the widow cleaning her house to find the coin. And when she does, she rejoices. Right? And then it's the sheep, the one that was lost, and the 99 are put away, and there is rejoicing. And in both cases, it says there is much rejoicing in heaven when someone is found. Right? So tell me, what is the point of the third passage in that story, the third parable in that story, the parable of the wayward son? It's the rejoicing when somebody comes home. And where is the elder son? The elder son's in the field and doesn't even know that the brothers come home. He was about his father's business, but he missed his father's compassion. He was about his father's business, but he missed his father's love. The father's business needed attending to, but the father's compassion needed to be embraced as well. No, a true son, a complete son, a son who is zealous and self-denying, serving and praying, who has earned the glory that allows you to say in the face of the forces of evil, as the Lord lives before whom I stand. We're, we're, we're discussing Elijah. It would be very easy for us to take the world as we know it. Last week we began, we said the world is perplexed. We are perplexed because we don't know what to do with the world. It would be very easy for us to take the inspiration of Elijah and to wield it like a 15-pound hammer and go beating everybody up with judgment because there's sin in the world. It would be very easy for us to stand as Elijah stood in the face of evil. But let me submit to you that a good servant goes and does what he's told. That Elijah must have done this at some sort of leading from Adonai. Yes, he, he did it almost on his own accord, almost in his own strength. But he did it by the leading of Adonai. 
In fact, it was the leading of Adonai that is beyond that of prophetic. It's when you know. It's, it's, it, it'd be like a husband and wife going into the grocery store. And the husband immediately goes to the milk. And the wife goes on her way. Be, because the husband knows she needs milk. She didn't have to tell him to go get milk. He knows. It's, it, when the husband is home and, and, and his wife comes home with groceries in the car and he puts down his newspaper, I guess people don't read newspapers anymore, puts down his tablet, how's that? And he goes out to the car to bring in groceries. He doesn't need to be told. Elijah didn't need to be told in that sense because he knew his father's heart and he knew what was going on and he knew it was the right time. This is what is being offered to us in this day to be not just about the father's business but about the father's heart. And this is how we stand. We stand as servants in the presence of Adonai. We stand as worshipers in the presence of Adonai, and we stand as people of prayer in the presence of Adonai. And finally this, the context of this all is self-denial. It is the idea of giving of oneself, which we find in the servant and we find in the one who prays. That level of self-denial, which is just all about the Father, that's the role of a good son. That's the role of a good daughter, a child, is one who is entirely wrapped up in the Father. So in these days of crises, in these days of stress and tension with the world. Yes, there are sins out there today that rival those of Ahav and Yitzhavel. This we know. And I don't think I really want to spend a whole lot more time analyzing culture and poking holes and how terrible it is. At the moment that Adonai gives me the authority to stand in his presence, at the moment that Adonai gives me the authority to stand in the face of the school board or the officials or the government or anyone else, then, then I'll try to do that. But until I'm given that leading, whether by my relationship with him or not, what I have, my work today, is to cultivate that nearness with Adonai, that closeness with Adonai, so that I can be a good child so that I can be responsive in the moment should he ever give me the role like the Elijah. But in the meantime, we have this, that Adonai is working, accomplishing the work, like we talked about, you know, the testimony from this week, that Adonai is accomplishing the work of restoring the hearts of children to parents and parents to children and all of that, and in in, in, in restoring our hearts to him. So this is the work of our day, the work of our time. And how, how do we begin this? By being in that place, standing in the presence of Adonai. Shabbat Shalom.